We'll continue through the Psalms, and, and we're going to, for the evenings, I'm going to go until Psalm 16, and then I'm going to start another, um, another book in the Old Testament for evening, but tonight we'll be in Psalm 11. Let me read the psalm. Psalm of David. In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know much about what was happening in David's life when he wrote this. We, we do know what you have recorded about his life uh, through him and through the people around him and, and uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so we can um, assume, we can speculate we don't know exactly, but we do know that he was, in a sense, uh, in a bad spot, and he pours out, and he's poured out his heart before you. And in a sense, as we go through all the Psalter, that that's what, that's the example that is left for us to to pour out our heart before you, to trust in you, to hope in you. And so, Lord, as we look at this Psalm and, and consider what David was thinking and feeling what he wrote. Help us to glean wisdom for our own lives, to understand and to apply these truths to our lives. Please be with me as I preach your word and speak through me for the sake of your people and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We see it in the news and the media and probably in culture and every day. And we don't have to look far around us to see that our world is broken. It's in turmoil. And even for those of us who uh, know a bit about history, it's, it's always been the case. But currently, as we look about our own culture and nation and society, we see that Things tend to be getting worse, and 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 even uh, uh, at an ever increasing speed. And it seems as if uh, our nation, our culture, and and uh, Western civilization as a whole is is self-destructing. We see uh, uh, morality um, being turned upside down, uh, as even in. Uh, Isaiah's time, uh, uh, light is exchanged for darkness and, and bitter for sweet, and what is uh, evil is called good. Uh, everything uh, in terms of God's standards are uh, rejected and, and twisted and turned upside down. E even the sense of, of uh, what a man is, what a woman is, uh, sexuality, and, and um, not just... Uh, turned upside down and, and, and distorted and perverted, but also uh, we see these things uh, entering into uh, places where we, we never thought they would enter into, such as uh, elementary schools and preschools, and, and it's just uh, almost uh, frustrating, disgusting, and, and just things that just make us want to run away, want to hide. And there's a reason why I, I say this, because this is somewhat of a sense of what David is, um, is expressing in his heart, uh, not, not in a sense to, uh, 
that's exactly the same as our culture and our society, but nonetheless, uh, as he uh, pours out his heart here, we see that there is a crisis, that there is, in a sense, a, a, a battle, um, something about um, the Israel itself uh, maybe on the, the edge of destruction. Um, some of you may... Uh, no, uh, verse 3, um, uh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That, that, that's, that verse is quoted um, in several, uh, by, by several people. Um, and if you don't know the psalm, you, you've probably heard that verse. And that is kind of almost at, at the heart of what's going on here. We don't know the exact situation, as many of the Psalms of, of David. We don't know the particular situation. We do know um, much of his life uh, from uh, from uh, first uh, from Second uh, Samuel um, and uh, and First Kings. Uh, we we do uh, see um, some historical background concerning David, uh, and so we can. Uh, kind of speculate uh, uh, what uh, event was taking place, uh, but we don't know for sure. We do know that there is, in a sense, a, a battle. There is danger. And so he, as, as he often does in many of his psalms, he, he, he not only cries out to God, um, he's not only um, uh, speaking to others around him, but there is a sense that he is reaffirming himself. He's reassuring himself. He's strengthening his, his faith, so to speak, here. And this is what many, um, many commentators would call a psalm of confidence. Uh, there's different categories uh, that, uh, that commentators and, and theologians try to categorize the psalms. There's psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, uh, psalms of confidence, uh, messianic psalms. And, and, and yes, those are just categories that, that, um, that people have, have used to try to, um, to categorize the psalms and, and to, to show uh, the, the difference in, in genre or the... the um, the particular uh, uh, scene and situation in which it was written, and many would say that this is a psalm of confidence. Alan Ross, in his commentary, he writes this, that this psalm has nine lines of poetry, the first four presenting the temptation to flee in view of the danger, and the last five, the psalmist's confident faith expressed in answer to the temptation. The temptation to flee from the enemy's forms of crisis of faith. And I don't believe that, that David is, is, in a sense, in a, a crisis of faith in, in the sense that he's about to lose his faith. But his faith is, in a sense, being tested. And he is in the midst of a crisis. And so much so that people around him are tempting him to, in a sense, flee, to flee the battle, to flee his duties. And so he starts off uh, speaking about where his confidence lies in God. And, and, and not only speaking to those around him, but I think he, he is speaking to his own soul to reassure himself. And so as we look at this psalm, and you, you probably see it, it's probably split in your Bible as it is in mine uh, in two sections, uh, verses 1 to 3 and then verses 4 to 7. And, and that is how, in a sense, uh, the, the content is that two, stand up, two stanzas. Um, the first um, shows his confidence um, in light of the crisis that he's facing, and then his the, the second stanza, his confidence in light of the Creator. And so that's how we'll look at this, uh, this psalm of confidence as David expresses his trust in Yahweh in light of the clear and present danger around him. He, we, he gives two expressions of confidence. And so first we see his confidence in light of the crisis 
in verses 1 to 3. As he says, in Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so he's, he's expressing his source of confidence, his confidence in light of his circumstances and in light of the crisis around him. We, we can see there's a, a sense of a battle looming around him. We, we don't know much more than that, but there is a, a danger. There is a, a crisis. There, there, is a, there is a threat. And then we see, we see um, uh, other people speaking to him. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? And so we'll see here in these first three verses his confidence in light of the crisis in response to the temptation, in response to the trouble, and then in response to the termination or the end of the matter. First, in response to the temptation. This temptation is, is uh, we, we don't know exactly where it's coming from, but as you read it, uh, and many commentators would, would say the same, that it suggests that the people around him, maybe his warriors, maybe his friends, maybe uh, the, the other Israelites, the allies, feel, uh, they, they, they feel in danger and, and even more in danger than David himself. And, and they, they want to get out of there. They want to flee. And he responds to this temptation that is probably coming from uh, friends, from allies. But nonetheless, it's, it's a temptation to, to flee and to flee to another refuge besides Yahweh. As he begins and he says, in Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? And there's a sense that, that that phrase, flee as a bird to your mountain, it, it may suggest uh, him fleeing back to uh, Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. It, it may uh, suggest that he is out in the field somewhere. He's away from Jerusalem, away from that fortress, away from safety. Or it could just be a phrase. I would take it as he is outside of Jerusalem somewhere with his army uh, against uh, some enemies of Israel. Maybe, maybe it's uh, Absalom and, and his, his, uh, the people with him. Or maybe it's, it's as he is on, uh, uh, on the run from Saul. Or maybe it's the Philistines. We don't know. But it seems as if those closest to him are, are telling him to flee from the battle, to return to a, a, a safe place. And he responds to that temptation. No, no, my, my refuge, my trust is, is not in a physical fortress or a place of safety. It's in God himself. In this, as David, um, he, he affirms himself, he affirms his faith, he assures himself that, that God is his refuge, his fortress, his mighty tower uh, who protects him, the one he can always run to, the one who is in complete control of all circumstances. As he affirms himself and assures himself, this raises a question for us. As, as David is responding to the temptation from his friends to flee and to run away, this raises a question uh, to us in, in that what, what are those places or those things we are tempted to flee to when crisis hits? Because we all have them. And, and it may not be a, a, a physical place, so to speak. Sometimes it is. Uh, you know, may, many of us, we can think... Um, back in, during our childhood, and, and maybe there's times almost every, uh, every person has these moments in their childhood where they were off and they were either being bullied or there was a threat from neighborhood bullies or, or some sort of danger uh, amongst the neighborhood kids, and all you wanted to do was to run home and to find that, that safety. 
But then as you grow older, that, that, that refuge, it, it might be your apartment or it might be your group of friends or it might be leaving the workplace and just going home or it might be something a little bit more uh, sinful. It might be uh, uh, substance abuse. It might be drugs or alcohol. It might be uh, uh, something like vacation or shopping or even worse or it could be... Um, if you can't escape physically or through substances, it might be mentally in your own mind, a daydreaming, asleep. But nonetheless, there are times we all have trials in life, and there's times in every one of our lives where uh, the trials seem uh, so hard, so significant, that all we can think of is to run away. And if we can't run away physically, we, there, there's some other means by which we can run away. And this is what's happening in David's life with the people around him that all they want to do is run away. And certainly David feels that temptation to run away as well. And he says, I, I, I can't run away from, from this crisis. I can't run away from this, this battle. Because it's significant, it's important. I can't just leave my duty behind. And certainly, as uh, I, I began with speaking about our culture and our world and Western civilization, there's a temptation uh, in the hearts and minds of almost every believer to flee. To flee from our society, to find a refuge somewhere else. Uh, if it's, you know, for those who have are currently living in a very liberal place or a blue state, it's a red state, or uh, maybe it's somewhere else, or maybe it's maybe there's a, a, another country somewhere where things don't seem so crazy. A few years ago, there was this book that came out, and uh, the title of this book was called The Benedict Option. And I honestly, I, I haven't read this book, um, but the premise for the book was talking about Benedictine monks that back in the, the, the Middle Ages that they, in a sense, retreated to their cloisters. And, and because of that, and they protected themselves from the decay of society around them and were, in, in a sense, almost were able to preserve some sort of culture and way of life. And this author was kind of putting this option for, forward for Christians that, that maybe we can uh, kind of gather together into communities and, and somehow um, maintain our uh, Christian culture. Or even uh, what's popular now is, is the, the concept of Christian nationalism and all these um, ideas and, and um uh, there's, there's differing viewpoints, and uh, some valid, some maybe not so much. But there, uh, whatever the case may be, there is this, this idea that things are crumbling all around us. Uh, society is decaying, and there's this temptation to either flee or, or to do something about it, to fight, to stand up. And in David's case... He, he says, I, 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 can't, I can't run away. I can't flee. Yahweh is my refuge, and I will stay here, and I will do my duty, and I will fight, and I will fight for the, the, the nation, for Israel. And certainly we, as believers, we, we aren't, uh, the church isn't a theocratic nation like Israel was. But we can have... Uh, some similar thoughts as we see our society decaying around us, this temptation to flee. And so David, he expresses his confidence in light of the crisis around him in his response to the temptation, but also, second, in response to the trouble, that there is, there is real trouble around him. Verse 2, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright and heart. They, they, they bend the bow. The, the, this shows that the trouble is, is mounting. It's mounting. And this, 
this idea of bending the bow is not just pulling the bow back, getting ready to fire. This is, you kind of have to understand um, uh, the, not only the verb here, but archery in a sense as well. This is uh, it's literally treading upon the bow. This is the idea that they are stringing the bow. As uh, uh, many uh, archers, uh, maybe not so much today with compound bows, but that when you had a string on a bow, you wouldn't always keep the string on the bow because that would, uh, that would uh, in a sense, uh, the bow would lose its strength. So you would unstring it until the battle came or your time to hunt. And so now they are stringing the bow. They are stringing the bow. They are making ready their arrows upon the string. And, and to do so, to, to, to uh, shoot under cover of darkness the upright in heart. In our day and age, we, we could say that they're loading the magazines, they're, they're making their war plans, they're uh, uh, preparing their, their plans, or, or not even in, in terms of battle and warfare, but, but maybe in terms of more of uh, ideological warfare. Uh, they're, they're preparing their lawyers, they're drafting their evil laws, they're lobbying the politicians or buying them if needed. They're preparing to destroy the nation, the society. It's happening all around us. And so we see that the trouble is mounting. It's mounting all around David. And then there's this sense that the trouble is sure to come. He knows it's going to come, and it's going to come at the upright. You know, I... I um, Sunday school, uh, it's probably about a month ago, I spoke about one um, Christian uh, uh, apologist, a famous man who wrote a, a lot uh, about the decay of Western civilization, many books, and, and even made a, a video series off of one of his books, Francis Schaeffer. Um, and he wrote this book, How Should We Then Live? And then he made a video series off of that. And well, in the beginning of that book and in the video series, he uses this illustration of a Roman bridge. A Roman bridge that has held for, for centuries, so many centuries, but the bridge was only built, it was only meant to hold up uh, people, foot traffic. And it was very narrow. But he... Uh, compared uh, that bridge, in a sense, to our society, that our society and Western civilization and America in particular was built upon a, a Christian worldview. And it's meant to uphold, in a sense, that people who adhere to that worldview and follow the morals and the values and are uh, moral, as even John Adams would say, this is a republic meant for a moral and religious people is wholly inadequate for any other. And so just as that Roman bridge, as he would say, couldn't um, uphold a, a truck, it would just destroy it. So the way the morals, the values upon which our society is built, it cannot uphold an immoral, godless society. And so it will crumble, and that is what's happening we see that the, the trouble mounting. We see the trouble that is sure to come. And there is this temptation within us all to flee, to run away, or to do something. And so there's this temptation in David's life as well, as certainly there's uh, this, his speech, uh, his uh, response, it, it alludes to uh, these enemies uh, coming in against Israel and him as the king trying to do his duty to defend the, the nation, the society. And so he, 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 uh, he expresses his confidence in God and God alone in response to the temptation to flee, the response to the trouble that's all around him, but also in response to the, the termination or the end of the matter. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
saying if the foundations or the pillars of society are destroyed, if the nation of Israel is destroyed, what can the righteous do? What will the righteous Israelite do? If the enemies win, what will happen? What will happen if, if, uh, if the enemies win, if they destroy us? If we flee and we just give up, what will happen? And so this is how he answers this, this temptation. He's saying, I, I can't give up. I, I, I can't flee. I can't go back to my mountain I'm going to stay, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to do my duty, and I'm going to seek refuge in Yahweh. I'm going to trust Him, whatever may come. All throughout the Old Testament, and even some parts of the New Testament, but primarily the Old Testament, we see scenes of battles. Battles uh, either of the nations or, or Israel against the nations. And sometimes in those battles, uh, we, we see, uh, uh, we read narratives and, and, and we, get, um, we, we can glean wisdom. We hear uh, phrases and, and uh, speeches. And, and uh, there's one such uh, scene in uh, 1 Chronicles 19 that just I was reminded about. This scene is, uh, if you've ever seen a war movie, almost every war movie has this, where... Uh, the leader, the sergeant, the general, whoever it is, gives his speech to rally the troops. And here in First Chronicles 19, you see this speech as uh, Joab is, is uh, leading the, his, his troops. And it says this in First Chronicles 19.10. It says, Then Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear. So he chose from all the choice men of Israel, and they arranged themselves to meet the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he put in the hand of Abshai, his brother, and they arranged themselves to meet the sons of Ammon. And he said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall save me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will save you. And then he says this, which stuck out to me in verse 13. Be strong and let us show strength for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. And this is a sense that David's attitude right here in these first few verses of Psalm 11. Be strong. Let us show strength for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. My refuge is in Yahweh. I will rest upon him. Everything around me may be crumbling. Uh, I, I may be up against uh, uh, unbeatable odds, but my trust is in the Lord, and I will rest in him, and I will trust in him, and I will hope in him, and I am going to be strong and courageous as God calls his people throughout all the ages to be strong and courageous, to trust in him, to do what is right, and to place our hope in him. Whatever may be going on around us. And this is the main thing we learn from these first few verses of, of David's confidence in light of the crisis around him. That his, his confidence is not in circumstances. It's not in his own strength. It's not in his own wisdom. But it's in God himself. And that God will always protect and provide for his people. And then second after he responds to this temptation from those around him and, and in a sense responds to his circumstances, he shows his confidence in light of the Creator, in light of his God, verses 4 to 7. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. 
And it's ultimately, he, he expounds upon uh, what he began the, the psalm with, this idea that, that all his hope, all his trust is in Yahweh. He takes refuge in Yahweh, and then he expands upon who Yahweh is. He, he reassures himself and those around him of who God is, of where he is at, of what he has done. And so he expresses his confidence in light of the Creator, first and foremost in his rule and reign, then in his range or uh, his, the, the places he sees and can go and the, his range is all over all creation and his recompense and his righteousness. First, his confidence in Yahweh's rule and reign is that he is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. There's a sense that, that uh, uh, David is saying that, that God is holy. He's set apart. He, he is separate, but he, he is also perfect and righteous. And he is in heaven. He is over all. He's ruling and reigning over all. And so he not only sees it, he's not only in control of it and in charge of it. He's, he's not uh, uh, taken by surprise. But he's also holy and righteous and good and pure. And he sees exactly what is going on on this sin-cursed earth amongst the wicked and their plans. And their plans which are, are mounting against David and the righteous and even against us. He knows. He, he rules and reigns over it all. And so ultimately that's where our hope lies that God is in control. Even though this world and this culture seems to be spinning out of control and disintegrating before our eyes, God is in complete control. It makes me, uh, it, it reminds me of times, uh, seeing this especially in the military, but you also see this in workplace or, or um, as Christians. Um, in certain places, uh, they, how they respond to being uh, coerced or intimidated. Um, and in our culture, it's usually very subtle. But nonetheless, it, it can happen. And it, it's becoming more um, explicit as our society decays. But there's a sense that, that and this probably, many of you probably experience this. It's peer pressure not to be faithful or to be coerced even by other believers or intimidated to be unfaithful in sharing your faith or in responding about your faith or, or even, uh, uh, you know, I heard this time and time again. Um, you know, you're not officially the official um, uh, statement for military chaplains is you're not allowed to proselytize. You're not allowed to in a sense, evangelize. Well, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are free to evangelize and to worship. Or even recently, you've seen in uh, the UK, a woman being arrested for praying outside of an abortion mill, praying silently. They asked her, are you praying? All authority has been given to Christ, and he commands us to go, therefore, and make disciples, to evangelize. We are free to uh, do that. However, we know, that, yeah, there, there might be consequences, but we are not to be coerced or intimidated by unbelievers. We are, are, are commanded to go, therefore, and, and make disciples, to evangelize. Now, yes, there, there are times where we exercise tact and wisdom and and there is a sense that in our workplace that we are there to, uh, to work for our employer and we are to do that. But um, don't be coerced. Don't be intimidated not to be faithful. Yahweh is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. And yes, we may 
bear the, the consequences of um, being faithful in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation. But we are still called to be faithful. There's no place in all of creation that is off limits to evangelism or the worship of God. God reigns over it all, and we are commanded to be salt and light, to proclaim his gospel, to call others to repentance and faith. And so, in a sense, as David is in the midst of the threats of the enemies of God all around him, he reassures himself that God is in his holy temple, Yahweh's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men, showing that not only his rule and his reign, but his range. And here we see uh, in, in the second half of verse 4, this what uh, theologians would call an anthropomorphism. It's a big fancy word for meaning that God is um, explaining or, or David is explaining God with uh, human attributes so that he, we can understand, kind of grasp um, who he is, his character, his, his abilities. God is spirit. He doesn't have a form except when God took on human flesh, but he is spirit. And, and, but uh, David uses this, this uh, language here to show that, that he sees everything. His eyes are everywhere, so to speak. This language, the eyes of the Lord, it's used in several places. Second Chronicles 16.9, it says this, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. Psalm 34.15, The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. And probably the, the most popular one, some of you, even if you don't know the reference, you probably heard this before, Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. He sees it all. Not, nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his sight. Not only does he see it unfolding, but he saw it before creation began because he, he, he knows the, the future from the past and, and everything in between. He knows it all. God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. David even uh, says this in, in his, his great, probably one, one of the, the greatest psalms, uh, and that's kind of hard to say, but uh, his greatest tre treatise on, on God and his attributes and his character in Psalm 139. And, and like many of his psalms, I believe in Psalm 139, David is also trying to reassure himself, uh, to bolster his faith of, uh, uh, concerning who God is and, and his character and his attributes and, and his power. He says in Psalm 139, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. And he'll go on speaking about God's attributes, his presence, his knowledge, and particularly his presence and his knowledge concerning David. There's also a sense that he does somewhat of the same here as he's reassuring himself and those around him that, that God sees it all and he's everywhere and nothing passes his, his sight or his notice. He's not surprised by anything. He knows his people. He knows who are his. And he will judge all people. And, and he tests the righteous, as, as David will then say in verse 5, that, that he reaffirms himself and, and he expresses his confidence in light of who God is in his rule and reign, in his range, in, in everything that is, he sees, but also thirdly in his recompense, that he will judge all peoples. Verse 5, Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. 
May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So so there's this sense that even as he begins in verse 5, Yahweh tests the righteous, this sense that he, he, uh, he evaluates them, he proves them. But he also judges all peoples, he tests all peoples, he knows. And he hates sin. And he not only hates sin, but he hates the sinner who commits it. And especially those, as, as David would say right here, those who love violence. It's not just that they do violence. It's not just that they plan violence, but they love it. They love wickedness. And so God hates them. He hates them. And then right here in verse 6, in a sense, somewhat of an imprecatory prayer. May he rain snares upon the wicked, or fire and brimstone and, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. God has reserved judgment for the wicked, and he will unleash it. And so many passages concerning his judgment. It's one of the, the, the main, um, main arguments for, uh, in, in presenting the gospel of God's judgment. Jesus uses it often. Speaks of God's judgment to flee from the wrath of God. And right here, there's this, this sense of, um, of David alluding back to Sodom and Gomorrah. As he speaks of fire and brimstone, burning wind, this destruction of the wicked and the wicked's dwelling place, where they come from, their city, their, their, their fortress, their compound, their nation, their society. As they, they seek to destroy the society and the nation of the righteous, he's saying that Yahweh will destroy your nation, your society, your cities. He will rain fire and brimstone upon your cities, your wicked cities as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And even as before he did that, as, uh, as um, uh, the angels came to Abraham and told him, before, even, uh, before this would even happen, and, and, and Abraham, we see this, this exchange with Abraham and God, uh, will, will you destroy it if there are 50? And then he goes on and on. And, and as you read that, that section of Scripture, you just, you just want to say, stop, stop, come on. But he, he's, just saying, he's just showing how, how gracious, how righteous God is, but also how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was, that there wasn't even five. And, and Abraham says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he does right. By destroying all of them, except Lot and his family. One commentator, he writes this concerning the the fire and brimstone, or fire and sulfur. He says this is reminiscent of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Evil will be completely burned up. Then he goes on and he talks about this phrase that David says, will be the portion of their cup. This this sense of uh, their cup, or this cup. And he goes on, he says, there is a cup of God's blessing as well as a cup of his wrath. The wicked will drink wrath to its dregs. But for those of us who are in Christ, Christ took his people's punishment upon himself by drinking the cup of God's judgment for us. God will destroy all wickedness. He will judge all all sin and his judgment is just and his judgment is serious but he is patient not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance and faith in him and so he he waits but he will judge all sin David assures himself concerning God's character, concerning his rule and reign, his range of sight, his recompense, his judgment, but finally his righteousness. 
That, that God is not an unjust judge. He, he's, he doesn't let sin slide. He doesn't let wickedness slide. He doesn't uh, let evil slide. He cares for his people, and especially for those who are upright. David ends this psalm by saying that in verse 7, Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. That there is an end to this all. There there is a a, a righteous end as God is righteous. that, That he will one day rule and reign in righteousness. He will do what is right because he loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. God is righteous. He loves righteousness. And yet, at the same time, as David ends and he says, the upright will behold his face. We know that the Bible clearly says that no one is righteous. No, not one. That God even told Moses that no one shall see his face and live. But we get this promise that the upright will behold his face. See this refuge of righteousness in Yahweh. That he is righteous and the righteous will behold his face. They will find refuge in him. Because he offers his righteousness to all who would repent and believe upon his righteous son for salvation. And so in Yahweh, there is a sense where there is this refuge. He is the refuge of the righteous because he and he alone is righteous. And he, uh, he uh, solved the problem of our unrighteousness by sending his perfect righteous son. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. See, the biggest problem with sinful man is not just that we commit uh, sin and we transgress God's law, but part of sin is that not only do we transgress, but we don't do the positive good things that we ought to do. We, we lack righteousness. It's not just that we commit evil, but we lack the righteousness that God requires. James says to whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's not just the bad things you do that are sinful. It's the good things you fail to do. It's the fact that none of us loves the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us loves our neighbor as ourself. And so it's not just that we transgress God's law, but we lack the righteousness which his law requires. And that righteousness is only provided for us in Christ in repenting and believing upon him and trusting him for the righteousness that we need to see God imputed to us through Christ. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's our only hope, that we will be upright and behold his face. And that is, in a sense, David's hope here. But nonetheless, we're left with this question concerning our day and age, as David was left with this question. What shall the righteous do? What can the righteous do? If we are in Christ and we have been given a righteousness... What, what shall we do? How shall we live and move and have our being amongst this wicked world? How can we uh, withstand uh, the evil all around us? I like what Dr. Will Var- Varner wrote in his devotional commentary uh, concerning this psalm. And I'm going to end on this note because I think it's fitting. He says this, It is right to flee from temptation, as Joseph did and as uh, Paul calls Timothy to do. It's right to flee from temptation, but not from duty. Instead of flying away like a frightened bird, you should trust God and mount up with wings like eagles. 
as it says in Isaiah 40, 31. If the foundations are destroyed, lay the foundations again. That is what Ezra did and what each new generation may have to do. David became king of Israel and laid the foundations for a godly society. After all, God is still on his throne and will one day judge the wicked. If you love righteousness, God is on your side. Or rather, I would say, you are on God's side. May we come to him for righteousness, for hope. And if we are walking in righteousness, we seek him as our only refuge. And as uh, Dr. Varner says right here, if the foundations are destroyed, lay the foundations again. This earth is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles. And so our hope is not in this world or in our circumstances. Our hope, our refuge, our strength is in God and God alone. And so we look to him, whatever this world may bring. Heavenly Father, it's easy for us. It's so easy, so natural, human even, to base our joy, our hope, our well-being on our circumstances. We, we, even, uh, we even prove it when we ask one another, how are you? And we go on and on uh, stating a case for how we're doing, whether good or bad, uh, and it's usually concerning our circumstances. And we're so connected in our day and age that we see uh, uh, news and media through our phones and internet and radio and, and many places and, and print. And, and we just see the world and the culture and the society descending and descending further and further into sin. And it's easy for us to get discouraged, to get angry, to get bitter, to get frustrated. And to just want to run away, to flee away, to whatever uh, refuge we, we make for ourselves, whether it's some physical refuge or in our homes or, or in vacation or substances or entertainment or whatever it may be. But you call us to flee to you, to hope in you, to trust in you, to rest in you. So, Lord, as we live and move and have our being in this wicked world, which is getting worse and worse, help us to trust in you, to hope in you, to be faithful to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.